0: One hundred percent, I resonate with when you invest your money in your first deal. What do you think? Uh, eventually, got you over that line, and and how did you pick which fund to go into? Were you looking for cash flow? Were you looking for equity growth? Was it just like I want to get in my first deal? For me, I
1: was I, I was trying to. I knew that I needed because of the the uncertainty and the discomfort I felt while trying to make that decision. I knew I had some growing to do. Right for me, I ended up choosing the income fund, which was you know a slow return over time a longer haul. I wanted to condition myself with just a $50,000, you know, first investment. I'm like, this will make me comfortable for the next ones, but you know, for the future.
0: All right. Welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners become educated and get access to private investments at the wealthiest investors in the world to utilize to grow their net worth. Uh, We do that by providing insight and acts to successful fund managers and investors across multiple asset classes. And uh, I'm your host, Pascal Wagner, and today we're interviewing Chad Corbett, the CEO of Magnum Opus Project. Welcome. Thanks for having me, man. I'm looking forward to this. (laughs) Yeah man. So so Chad and I know each other uh from Gobundance uh for a couple of years uh which is a men's group, a mastermind group uh to help each other get better in all areas of life. But but Chad, please uh just start out by giving us a story about how you got into investing in funds syndications. Anything where there's a an operator managing capital on your behalf? Uh,
1: For me, it started by learning the difference between investments and jobs. And I built companies thinking they were investments and they turned out to be jobs. And I built a real estate portfolio because that was supposed to be passive income. What I learned is that my lifestyle is what, I'd say the dominant reason for me becoming a, a truly passive investor was lifestyle goal. So, I set a goal to retire by 40, and I wanted to travel the world on adventure motorcycles and develop clean water throughout the world. So, running a real estate team, doing over a 100 deals a year, like a small team, doing over a 100 deals a year, and doing another 50 or 60 on the investments front, you kind of have a localized business. You're not very geographically independent. So I started to look, as I learned more about investing, I started to pay more attention to taxes and what you actually lose when you flip a house, like what, how much of that is being eroded. Or you just end up playing this game where the tax deferral game that, you know, swap till you drop and you're always running from it. To me, it just felt like a giant snowball of, of liability. And I didn't like that. And then I'm like, how can I invest... So yeah, and my, like the yield that I, I set for myself was a goal of uh, if, if it if it won't yield a true 18% ROI, then don't do it. Annualized. Um, and that's, you know, that was pretty easy to do flipping houses. It was pretty easy to do with workforce housing rentals, with lease options, with sub twos. And, you know, wholesale is technically, I guess, an infinite ROI. But they, those were very, you know, very people intensive. Like you had to be on the phones, You had to go to appointments. You had to know what your competitors were doing. And it just didn't seem like it would actually scale to where I could be out of the country for two or three months without cell service and come back without damage being done. So for me, it was in a, a large part a lifestyle move. I said, you know, how can I get 18% plus returns and not have to think about it when I'm, you know, trying to survive in the middle of Nepal when it's 115 degrees and there's a snow leopard outside my tent? And that was kind of how I started in this. So the first step there was turning a business into a million dollar balance sheet. So I used small business, mainly a real estate team, uh, a real estate education company and a real estate lead company and a holding company. Um, Those are all the pieces like the multiple income streams that got me to where I could, you know, confidently put a million dollars on a balance sheet for a prescription agreement, subscription agreement. The very first investment that I made, uh, a friend of mine, Paul Moore, who you've probably heard on Bigger Pockets, uh, Paul and I would meet just... We had like a little two-person mastermind. We'd meet once a week and have coffee and just talk things through. And he had just finished writing his multifamily book. It was already kind of the, the back end of that trend before people started paying crazy three-cap prices. But... Paul had already raised capital for multifamily investments and he just said, in good conscience, I can't put my guys in these deals. So we talked that through and we we back tested different asset classes and he, I'm not taking credit for his fund. It was his idea. I just kind of helped, you know, validate it for him. But I watched him put together a fund in 2018. His first fund was focused on mobile home park and self storage. And we back tested that all the way through like, you know, oh one, one and it looked like it would hold up multifamily looked like it was overbought boy, do we not know what we didn't know. Right. Um, but it was hard to find what we considered a really good deal that you'd stake your reputation on even all the way back then. Um, so that was my first fund. I went into his Wellings Income Fund one. Um, I th- think it was income, and he had two, he launched a growth fund and an income fund. Um, so anyways, I went on that. It was, uh, if, if I remember right, a $50,000 minimum with a bonus 10 prep for first round investors and a projected multiple of 2.4 at the time with a three to five year principal payback and a seven to 10 year disposition were the terms of that. Um, and I chickened out and I went 50 grand. I invested the minimum. And that's one of those things. It was my first accredited investment. It's the first time I'd ever you know, given up control. That was the hard part. Like it's it's nothing to just go throw 50 grand down on the house because you know you've got options. You can drive over there and do X, Y, or Z with it. And it felt so much different the first time. But here we are you know several years into that um, the multiple of 2.4 seems laughable when reITs approach you and buy assets at two and a half and three caps you're just like what sure <laughs> like can we close now um, well, I'll, I'll nft this thing so we can transfer it immediately but so it's the it's, it's actually outperformed expectations and you know the, for me I went from a point of being afraid to let go of 50 fifty thousand to having Paul come to me and saying hey you know we just just sold this for a crazy price. And I'm like, I don't want my money back. Before you ask, I do not want my money back. Because for me, I saw it as wait, like, if I can keep that deployed there, then I'm not playing the ta- you know the tax deferral game or trying to reallocate. So that was my first deal. Um, it was with somebody I had already built trust with over time. Somebody who I knew his story. Um, I got to meet with him face to face. I've, and one thing that I, I truly respect about Paul is even though we were cl- our close friends, when I got apprehensive and I'm like, man, I don't know. I don't know what's fun to do. I don't know what dollar amount. He he didn't close at all. He said, you know, listen, if, if you're unclear at all, just don't do this. He said, if if you're not a 100 percent clear, I don't want I don't want you to invest. And I respected that a lot. And that's ultimately what I've learned through this journey is I, I underwrote the first one correctly, people first, then the deal. Um, and that's been probably the, the best lesson that I was fortunate enough to learn in the very beginning of the very first deal is, is underwriting people. So that was the beginning of my journey. I've done quite a bit since, but uh, that was the first one.
0: Yeah, a ton to unpack there. I, I'm I'm excited to dive into it. So. So uh, t- tell me a little bit more about, you know, one, 100% I resonate with when you invest your money in your first deal. It's like, okay, I'm, a, I'm aware that I'm not going to see this money for a while. You know, hopefully this turns out okay. You know, the first time you do anything, it's really scary. What do you think uh, eventually got you over that line? And, and how did you pick which fund to go into? Were you looking for cash flow? Were you looking for equity growth? Was it just like, I want to get in my first deal?
1: Um, for me, I was, I, I was trying to, I knew that I needed, because of the, the uncertainty and the discomfort I felt while trying to make that decision, I knew I had some growing to do, right? For me, I ended up choosing the income fund, which was, you know, a slow return over time, but a longer haul. Um, and I wanted to condition myself with just a $50,000, you know, first investment. I'm like, this will make me comfortable for the next ones, the you know, for the future. And, you know, in in retrospect, I probably if I had it to do over again, I would have done no less than one hundred. Um, because it was it's 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 been a deal that's... I mean, where do you get a ten pref with a what's probably going to end up being a three and a half four multiple, like it's that's a pretty rare one with with that with with a less than a fifty percent or less than a thirty five percent debt ratio, like it's almost unheard of. They're out there, but it was a unicorn, and I just didn't know it. I should have been way more comfortable than I was, but I ended up choosing that because it forced me to have a long mindset. You know, the seven to ten year mindset and it forced me to make that, that, that connection of you're letting go of this money, forget about it. Like you, you, you made a, an informed decision, you underwrote the deal, now move on. That's what passive means. And I think I didn't, I don't think I made any mistakes in that. I think it's, it it did do what I, what I intended to do. You know, it's, it's, it's funny to watch as you age, I'm only 41, but I've watched my risk tolerance go from, you know, I came out of poverty, great people, just not a lot of money. And I went from like clinging to every dollar to now it's like you know I have to negotiate with the bank because they have these limits where they're they're like nobody wires a half a million dollars in a day and I'm like yeah they do, <laughs> and it's like I've sent you know I mean I've sent seven figure wires and just didn't bat an eye like I was just I just dropped into a Kinkos or something and you know overnighted a package to to, to make a million dollar investment and. Not always on my behalf, not always my money, but I represent others. And it's interesting to see in yourself how your your risk tolerance or the the seeing certain things that you used to perceive as threats are just administrative at this point. And that that's what that was about. Like the biggest part of that, you know, that the the resistance on the front end of that investment was knowing that I had to condition myself to have more trust in myself, frankly. Like, I, I I had kind of a laid out a thesis. I, you know, did what I thought I should do to underwrite the person, then the deal, and it just came down to learning to trust myself at the end.
0: What – how did you even pick funds uh, to begin with? Okay, so, you like, you knew Paul and, like, this investment opportunity came up, but, you know, you had – a ton of, I guess, opportunities to maybe invest in your own business or invest in maybe your own real estate or deals. Like, wh- why not the stock market or why not, you know, wh- why funds? Why why not your own investments? Or, you know, tell me about that.
1: So for me, I, I came up like in in the 2008, 9, 10 period, I, I was in resort real estate development and sales. So ski front, beach front. And when banks pulled all the condo products in in the early summer of 2008, I knew I didn't. I didn't have a good enough financial education to understand what was happening, but I wasn't stupid either. So. I went to community banks and raised $42 million in two days. Then I went to the developer and said, hey, you're going to, I'm transitioning out of sales. I'm going to help navigate this crisis. So I ended up managing the closings for over a billion dollars worth of pre-sold real estate with no lending behind it. And we just, we would negotiate one tranche at a time from banks when they were in a liquidity crisis. And then I would kind of be the hub between the developer, the broker, um, the escrow and the buyer. And I would try to find a way to put deals together. And in in that, it ended up becoming like a real life think and grow rich. So I got to help over 400 high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals in one of their darkest hours when they, you know, they were used to running off credit, but their credit was frozen. They were illiquid with, you know, they had an 18, $20 million balance sheet and literally didn't know they were going to buy groceries. And I got that experience, I think probably shaped me as an investor. Pfff. <laughs> Because I saw what leverage, I saw the ugly side of leverage first. Like I was building, I'm just starting to build my financial education in that deleveraging event. And I saw the ugly, I saw deleveraging in, in its ugliest form and grown men crying who had so much of their self worth wrapped up in their net worth. And I think that really shaped who I am as a man, but also who I am as an investor. So coming out of that and becoming an entrepreneur, starting real estate businesses, and seeing myself being more like them, I started, I learned my first golden cage lesson. And, you know, the golden cage is when you're breaking six figures in revenue and, and from and, and the outside world's like, that guy's a stud, like he's killing it. And then you, you realize you worked an 18 hour day and you, you really haven't lived in weeks or months. So I've made those mistakes. And that in part started to shape that too. When I, you know, real estate's hard. Like if you're, if you're a solopreneur, whether it's investment or brokerage, you have to bust your ass to make real money like it's just it's it's extremely hard i don't you know I, I own real estate course companies and i try to make it sound simple enough that people aren't intimidated from trying but i don't lie like it it's, it takes no lack of tenacity learning that lesson just how hard it you know develop ski front beachfront development i basically snowboarded scuba dove and made buddies with high net worth people it's a whole different ball game when you're dealing with single family or multifamily. so i learned that hard lesson and i was like my gosh this does scale like unless you get and, and I see how hard it is for people to build a true autonomous business and real estate investment, like in in residential investment uh, or brokerage. It's almost impossible to have it something be truly autonomous in a sustainable manner. So I started to lose hope in that vision and I started to look at, well, what could I do? Like I have this financial education now. I know how to underwrite deals. I've, I've done stuff for, you know, clients who are high net worth clients that didn't know a lot about investing, I was able to educate them to make better investment decisions, which just created my next deal, right? So I, that ended up leading me to an introduction to a guy named Joel Block. And Joel did it does an annual or biannual syndication symposium in Las Vegas, and it was a, I think it was a family office guy that, that said, you need to meet this guy. So I flew out to Vegas and I went through a, I think it was three or four day, like intensive symposium with Joel Block and learned how to be a sponsor. That to me looked like the biggest golden cage I could ever build. I was really grateful to know uh, exactly how to put an, uh, you know uh, an offering together, to know what it looks like to be a sponsor and to meet sponsors who were trapped in their own deals because they didn't explain
0: un- sponsor to the audience.
1: Uh, just the the general partner in a deal, so the person who has all the voting you know all of the voting power and all the decision making power that your money is funding. And for me, the the risk reward of that, I'm 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 an empath. Like it's really important to me that I don't hurt people or disappoint people. Like I I want to make people's lives better. So what I had overlooked in that, I was excited about the the finance, the capitalism side of of being a sponsor. I hadn't really considered the human side. And when I started to hear, like actually meet people who were stuck in deals because of the human aspects, because their reputation was on the line, the return was gone. They were working their asses off to save their reputation. And I'm like, nope, this isn't for me. Like this is even worse than owning a single family or multifamily portfolio. It owns you. And for anyone, I mean, I have friends who are probably listening that are sponsors. Like I have nothing, but the, I have the utmost respect for for good sponsors. I don't feel like I should be one because I like to earn like a banker and live like a hippie. And if I want to be off grid for a month, I want to be off grid for a month. I don't want to be you know thumbing an iPhone looking for a cell signal. Um so that was my first introduction to funds was actually try like looking at getting into the fund as a GP because I had deal flow. What I didn't have was enough buyers to buy all the deals that I could find back then. Um I underwrote some really neat stuff for other for other investors in that twenty 13 14 the bankrupts the corporate bankruptcies were still happening there were still some pretty damn interesting deals happening behind the scenes and I'm like my gosh but they were they were big deals and you know that's those are past now it's coming we're setting up for that again but that's kind of where I made the switch from having a GP mindset to an LP mindset and I'm like wow nothing but respect for these guys I'm an investor not a sponsor Um, So then I just kind of adjusted, you know, my my strategy and thesis. And I'm like, okay. so I know I want to be a passive investor, not active. And I just doubled down. I shut down three companies in one day, doubled down on one, focused on focused all my growth and like the one that would allow me. Geographic independence and the and the quickest growth tra- trajectory for a balance sheet. Doubled down on that, took it into seven figures, um, and was able to get that you know get my personal balance sheet up. And then I just then I started you know just pouring every dollar I could. Like I I cut my when I first joined Go Abundance, we do one sheets for anyone who's not in it, which is essentially like your personal financial and lifestyle statement if you could imagine that all on one page and at the first year that i joined i had spent fifty thousand. i think i had 503 horizontal and i'd given away 163 and everyone's like who the hell are you and but that's how i was thinking like i was spending as little as possible and just all of it was being pushed into investments so i could could get there um so that's how I got into it. And then, you know, once you get into a good deal, it's it's like, oh, you want more, right? It's like, well, who the hell cares if that house just hit the market? Like if I can make it twenty five percent IRR and go travel nine months a year, I could give a damn if every house in the neighborhood is fifty cents on the dollar.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And when when you started investing, was it was it? For additional cash flow, were you looking for opportunities that had were primarily equity growth focused? Were you, was it a mix?
1: No, for me, I learned something. And I thought at that time I was in my early 30s and I thought I wanted to retire by 40. That was a goal that I set. At 29, I hit the reset button. Burped, burnt the boats, disappeared into the wilderness, and came out a different guy. And my goal was retire by forty, go save the world, like go do philanthropy work, do adventure travel, blend all that together with photography, and just just have fun. But as I got to where I I, my and I set a number of two point two five million invested at a conservative ten percent yield, and that would give me you know two hundred twenty five grand, and that was enough to you know to live and live and give like I wanted to. But when I got there, I, you know, hedonistic adaptation gets the best of us. It's like, well, this isn't that special. Now what? So I started to think differently. I started to think bigger. And I'm like, well, what if I could give away 20 million bucks before I turn 50 just to see what that feels like? So that in large part has shaped my investment thesis I look at things in short term, mid term, long term, and for me, at forty one years old, for me at thirty years old, when I first kind of these are my my novel thoughts, but um, I'm sure many people have come to these same conclusions. For me, short term meant in the next three years, mid term. or excuse me, it meant in the next 10 years at that time from 30 to 40, like till that retirement horizon. And then midterm was 40 to 62 until you can access your your retirement instruments. And then from there on, that was the long-term bucket, the legacy bucket. So for the beginning of this story, I was investing with that mindset. Like I want to, between now and fit 40 years old, this is where you do your high-risk, aggressive investments. This is where you learn and take chances. This is the proving ground. The midterm bucket, I did things like Index Universal Life, where I started investing in my early 30s, so I know I could self-bank in my 40s. And I have contingency plans for long-term care, disability, chronic illness. I've got all those routers attached. It's even, you know, it's it's I can use it in such a way that, I can give myself 0% interest loans for acquisitions. I can treat it like a cash instrument, or I can loan myself money at ridiculous commercial rates and I can harvest off tax liabilities into a non-taxable entity. So if I want to make an investment personally or through, through an LLC, then my IUL can lend my dead, dead Chad's money. To this at like, let's say 30%. And I can make 30% returns and pull that profit out of the company and into the IUL. So that was my midterm mindset was things that aren't necessarily that risky, but it takes time for them to mature into where they become really usable. So I started to invest in my 30s for an instrument that I still don't use in my 40s. Now, we're coming into the environment where it seems really smart that I set that up because I'm still paying premiums based on my 30-year-old self. But now, my 41-year-old self has a million dollars in liquidity at zero interest or stupid high interest rates, depending on what the strategy is. And... Who the hell wants to pay eight, eight and a quarter for a deal? Like if you do want to use leverage in this correction, like, so it's that, I like pat myself on the back a little bit there because everyone told me I was a fool, but it's turned out to be really good. It was, it was smart to do. And it only represents a, a, you know, a percentage of it. It's not my primary investment vehicle, but I'm, I guess I'm mostly showing you my mindset at the time is like that, that is just, it's a, it's a, you know, 18 grand a year goes into that in premium, but it represents a whole new set of opportunities in my, you know, my 40s and 50s. And I started to fund the investment in my 30s. So you don't see a great return on that. I mean, it's it's probably returned, you know, eight or 9% um, tax free, though. And as, as time goes on, it's almost like an amortization table. The fees are heavy on the front and then almost taper off to nothing as it becomes fully funded. So that was the midterm. And then long term, I was using self-directed IRAs with checkbook control, solo Ks and SEP IRAs. And that's a bit of a game, like the deferral game. I ended up changing all that and um, as the political climate shifted this last time. And I saw goal, goalposts being prepared to be moved. I, I ended up re Restating all that into a QRP, but at that time my long-term bucket was uh, hard money lending at, on a small scale. I guess I would call it just private money lending, but I did really well with that. So my long-term bucket, I would I would write uh, to local real estate investors. I would originate at 1%, uh, one percent, one point. Fifteen percent interest, unless the loan goes out of term, in which point at which point it it retroactively adjusts to eighteen percent interest from the point of origination. And with that, I would average about nineteen percent APY in a self directed IRA. And I mean, do the math; your money doubles every three point six five years, right? If if you're doing that, um, so that that was kind of a game. Like the long term bucket is kind of my my. Uh, the education department, right? That's where you're like, okay, so if I have to make a mistake, I wanna make it in the long-term bucket. The short-term bucket is, you know, it's aggressive. Um, You find out if you're wrong faster in that bucket. So I kind of looked at it that way. And then I started once I had that established. So I was focused on income growth in my own companies, which would give me investment capital. Um, I was focused on tax, like getting my taxes as low as I possibly could all above board, but without building myself another golden cage. So I became a Florida resident. I, you know, I, I started learning. I learned a lot more about how to properly use LLCs with S-corp elections. Um, like how I received money became very different. So that was, and I've been able to keep my effective tax rate below 20% for years. I think it was 12.8 in this last year. I, it was kind of focus on growing your income, then focus on minimizing your taxes, then focus on, you know, having some investments in those buckets. And then you're like, okay, now what? And that's where like passive, you know, LP positions were just the most logical thing for me. Um, You know, you can go buy a small business. You can go start another small business. You can go buy real estate. Uh, You know, there's a million things you can do. To me, stocks, uh, I I look at stocks as the same as uh, stock investing to me is like investing in real estate by only looking at Zillow for sale by owners. The, 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 the deal has been picked over thousands of times. And I know there's obviously exceptions, like look at Buffett and Munger but as a basket i think we have an index fund bubble right now because too many people trust passive investing in equities and you know i respect jack bogle but i do think that like what he said in the 80s isn't the same now we've slowly built this confirmation bias chamber of facebook groups and and blog movements that have turned into an everything bubble and we're we're, we're going to see a lot of those passive investors that are trying to live on a four percent rule they're in for a pretty rough decade i think so i looked at that i, I looked at mr money mustache and you know there's the, all these different fire people the financial independence retire early and that to me looked more dangerous than the buy multifamily rents always go up confirmation bias chambers and i'm like yep that's not it so I started to look at stock. I did look at stocks. You know, you look at stocks, you look at bonds, you look at real estate, you look at gold. At the time, crypto wasn't that exciting. Um, you know, it, we were all still, I think, at that point, still learning about it. Um, I, I go back to emails between me and buddies in 2013, and I'm like, I can't even read this because we were like, if we just put ten thousand on it, you know, we, <laughs> this would be a way different conversation. How do we have the courage to do that? But ultimately, where I ended up was. I like real estate. I like certain silos of certain verticals in real estate. And that 2016 made me very nervous. Like when... When the Federal Reserve tried to taper from 2008's, you know, QE, or their intervention, when they tried to taper and we had taper tantrums, when in fall of 2019, when the repo market, you know, breaks down overnight just because you're trying to taper the Fed balance sheet, I just didn't, I didn't trust many things. And, I like real estate, but I I, I don't really trust uh, the the markets in real estate that are purely driven by by falsely low interest rates. You know what goes up has to come down, and it's if 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 rates stayed at zero forever, that would have been fine. But I didn't think they would. So I was looking for what is the recession proof vertical in real estate? What is that? And it's you know the lower thirtieth percent obviously get hurt the most in these type of monetary environments but they also spend the they 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 have to consume the highest percentage of income and that's where workforce housing um self storage mobile home parks things like that are you know wise real estate investments grocery stores um you know discount stores but most of the things that i looked at then were already looking overbought to me. I mean, how many dollar generals have been built in the last 8 years? Like that was a really attractive investment back then in like 2013 14. I was like, "Ooh, I wish I would wish I was in a position to do this, but I wasn't." And now it's like who the hell would, who would who would do a dollar general? You have to build 14 of them to make any sense of it now. So, that's what landed me into like the LP mindset, what ultimately landed me in back in the real estate vertical. Um in looking for that first deal, I, I looked at buying my own mobile home park or I actually had an idea to lease land dirt cheap, throw up a chain link fence, put in, you know, 150 tons of gravel and get go to the port in Norfolk, Virginia and buy wholesale conaxes, bring them back and turn make a modular self-storage. The reason I got to that is as I underwrote my first couple of self storage deals, I realized the biggest risk you have, and the one that's hardest to control, is someone else building one across the street or just down the road or at a closer to an intersection. And I was like, Well, you can you can mitigate that risk. Just make your self storage portable. So why don't we do conaxes, Just cut garage doors in them, well, you know, frame walls. And in a matter of three days, you could move your entire facility and just send them a new address. Your stuff, your stuff's here. So that's, that's what I was looking at doing. And I'm like, that's just too much work. <laughs> that's where that, that I was like, earn like a banker, live like a hippie. Nope. That's working like a banker. <laughs> so I kind of backed off and I was like, okay, how can I invest in this? So Paul and I'm out for coffee one day and he's like, you're not going to believe I'm completely pivoting. And I'm like, tell me more. And ironically enough, he was pivoting into the space that I was considering jumping into on my own. I'm like, take my money.
0: That's awesome. So when you, what I'm hearing from you is this trend of, look, you've built up your, you had this dream as an entrepreneur, uh, to grow your wealth and ultimately kind of live this lifestyle where you could travel the world and do what you wanted. And at some point, you know, you're, you're a deal junkie. You're someone who, who has access to deals. You have knowledge. You've, you've the expertise. You, you could do all of, and you, you do all of these things yourself, but you are, you're realizing that in order to achieve the next stage in your life to have that more freedom the ultimate goal of what you're trying to pursue is that you need to be more of an LP investor and then and then what i'm also hearing is that you are what you're thinking is okay where do i want to place money in what asset classes what's happening in the economy uh, and you know you're a smart guy, and so you're you're thinking through like, oh, you know, I think this asset class will do well. This is this is not overbought um, yet, uh, or or things like that. And then you're finding operators to place your cash with, so that you can go live that lifestyle. D- does that sound yep like a good recap? That's how it started. <laughs> um, so so what does that look like? what does your investing look like today? Like h- how much have you invested into LP deals? Um, what's, wh- what are maybe the different types of asset classes you've invested into, or is it all, all, you know, mobile home parks? Yep. Uh, and then, and then how did you, how do you pick, um, would love, love more of your thinking of pick of why you went into those and maybe what you're thinking about now.
1: Sure. So from that first deal, I took the position and I'm like, okay, now I'll rebuild cash, get back to a good cash position and I'll go find the next one. So I started looking at other syndications. At that point, I got really fixated on the lifestyle goal. So grow business, like at business income, grow as quickly as possible and go live, go have a damn ball. So 2018 and 19 were just fantastic years. I was all over the world. I traveled nine to 12 months a year, uh, broke, you know, balance, uh you know was growing my net worth uh, tremendously growing cash flow tremendously started new companies like had a digital course company and i was just I was just having a ball, so I got a little distracted from from my own thesis. I was just piling cash and until I come around to uh uh was it no, like November of <clears throat> November of nineteen I just looked up and I'm like I had been all, literally all over the world that year and i hadn't I hadn't even thought about investing. I had like 800 grand in cash sitting in freaking checking account or in well, the money market under a million and a half FDIC insurance with Edward Jones. But I hadn't even been looking at that. I was just plowing money into that, waiting for a correction, right? Like I'm like, man, the repo market's breaking down when they do simple tapering. So it's about time, like get the cash ready. So I was just stacking cash for, you know, two years almost, but I was making a lot like what I was investing in my companies the time I invested was resulting in, you know, very high uh, income. So I looked up all of a sudden and I'm like, what the hell is wrong with me? Who sits around with like 800 grand sitting in, what what was the money market account back then? Like 0.003? And so I'm like, holy crap, I got to do something with all this money. And I started looking at what do you buy? And I almost went back into multifamily. Um, Because I was in the process of selling my shares in a company, already had more cash than I cared to have, and wasn't using it. It was, I just kind of, I'd been busier playing than I had been thinking about investing. Coming, or just prior to COVID, we put Nigel and I had $7.3 million worth of multifamily under LOI we got home from Nashville 2 days later boom covid lockdown and i'm like i don't know man I'm like who knows what this is going to be so i took the conservative route i'm like i'm going to i'm going to pull back and wait <clears throat> and i realized it might cost me these deals and while i was waiting i was like you know i trust based on the macro conditions at that time what i saw was an energy crisis And I started looking for energy arbitrage and I'm like, what the hell does this even look like? How do you gain control of fuel or, you know, like electricity or I have, you know, I'd looked a lot in the solar, like commercial solar development. And I'm like, how do you control electricity? If everyone's going to be home, rates are going to rise. If if we're doing all these things economically, we're going to disrupt commodities markets. We're going to disrupt. So how do I get into commodities and energy? And how do I do that as an LP? Not and not by equities, not by stocks or ETFs. Like, how do I get into the wholesale side of energy arbitrage, not the retail side? Like if you buy utilities, you know, as an ETF. Um, and that is what ultimately led me to find an opportunity in Bitcoin mining. Um And I I was a first-round investor. I found some some guys out of Texas that, when if you remember the day West Texas crude went to minus 35 a barrel, that was a pretty exciting day because we were already talking about this, and they took action in a big way. And getting that power purchase agreement at, you know, a a sub two cent electricity. And what do you do with sub two cent electricity in a free substation? They don't have to pay for Well, the the best way to convert that into cash. Even when Bitcoin was trading at 8000 bucks was with a Bitcoin mine. Um, So I took a a $200,000 position and a $30 million raise. That was probably the most speculative thing I've ever invested in. However, when I looked at the macro environment and I looked at Bitcoin, like, and you and I were talking about this at that time too. Like I, I didn't have the courage to buy Bitcoin because I didn't see the adoption rates where I wanted to see them. I didn't see that the utility, like others didn't see the utility of it and it wasn't understood enough. So I'm like, I want to benefit from what I believe will be, you know, a huge rise in Bitcoin, but I don't want exposure to the Bitcoin itself. So what, what am I, what can I tolerate exposure to? Energy and real estate. And that's how I, Looked at that 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 deal, it was backed you know it was backed by energy for the most part, but also backed by a debt instrument, a senior senior debt instrument, and that one I went two hundred in that, um, and no more than I wrote the check. It seems like Bitcoin went, I think Bitcoin was trading at twelve. I discounted it to eight like I gave I, I was looking at a 25% discount for just for underwriting. Um, and we if you want to get into how, how we underwrite sponsors, that was an interesting one. But ultimately, you know, Bitcoin went on a tear literally two weeks after that. Um, and that one rose to be a unicorn in what eight months, I think we went from zero to 3 billion independent valuation in eight months. So that one, that's where LP got really exciting. And that investments very close to to going through a reverse merger even throughout the turmoil of the last 18 months we're still looking to you know to 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 list that company and that'll be a first for me like to within a three-year period you know invest in a unicorn with an, what i would still say is an extreme level of protection um, multiple layers of contingency plans, and to have it actually blow into a, an, into a unicorn and go public—that's been a pretty fun ride. I've learned a ton. Uh, I was just on the phone. So with
0: you that. invested in that that company as an LP, and it wasn't like a a Bitcoin uh, help. Uh, it wasn't a Bitcoin mining fund. It was a, it was an investment in the company that does Bitcoin mining.
1: Yep, and the assets oh, wow. <clears throat> the assets were you know a power purchase agreement. That was a 10-year power purchase agreement. It included, a. it was only a $1 lease, but it was in an industrial brown space that was condemned by the EPA, but had all the electrical infrastructure already in place. We're talking $150 million in substation infrastructure that we didn't have to raise capital for. Um, so there were risks in the deal. Like, what if the EPA says, nope, we want that back? What if, you know, our cock, you know, reneges on, on their deal and cuts the power? There, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of risk we really had no control over, which was, that was, again, I, like, I had conditioned myself to, to have more risk tolerance. So for me, it was the people were the biggest part of that deal, like who are they? What have they done in the past? What 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 do they do if, if all this goes sideways? And what I loved about that deal is they had not just one, but multiple contingency plans. Um, you can just sell the electricity. You can convert the building into a server farm. You can do many different things. Um, But in addition to having contingency plans to the primary primary strategy of the company, they also had, they were giving us senior creditor positions. So we didn't have voting rights, but we had control if it went sideways. And I found that, you know, I think that was a I think in retrospect, like those guys should really document what's what's happened with this deal over six rounds, all having a different type of uh, you know debt equity instruments. <sighs> It's, and it was very investor focused. Like they've, along the way, have continued to, if something changes, which boy, has it changed a lot recently, like they will get creative and actually offer, you know, kind of a bonus to investors for trusting them while they weathered the storm. So that one, that deal, you know, there's a huge returns in it. But I think the biggest takeaway from that deal is, is I was, it's the validation that really focusing on underwriting people is critical. That's 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 what matters more yeah, than so, anything. So,
0: so dive into that a little bit more. So, you know, we've talked, you mentioned in, at the beginning, it's actually just a common theme on this show of investing in the operator first, the deal second. Uh, how, how do you go? Uh, one thing that I keep hearing is when you, uh, you keep talking about the operator, which I want to get into here now, uh, but you've also talked about, a lot about how to de-risk the deal so uh, maybe what i'm hearing here is you have a two-step process the first is you underwrite the operator make sure that you feel comfortable and then the second part is is like okay everything about this deal what are all the things what are all the risks and how is it being de-risked and then am i comfortable taking those risks is that is that what i'm understanding yeah Yep.
1: And, in, and that first part of it, like the, the thing for me is I want to look a guy in the eye and say, what happens when this gets sideways? When you're working seven days a week to defend my principal with no chance of return and you're not getting paid,
0: how many years can you tolerate that? How do you how do you do that? Like, OK, I'm imagining Chad walks into a bar, talks, talks to this guy and is. Uh, you just do it the
1: way I You know, like. It. You, you let awkward silence hang, and you watch body language.
0: You listen to answers. So you're literally, you're literally asking that question.
1: Oh hell yeah, yeah!
0: <laughs> give me, give me like the answers.
1: They're all different. Like, that's just the thing. You can tell silence, like awkward silence, I find to be one of the best tools in business. So if you can say something abrupt that 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 the other party didn't expect, then you get them. They're they're You know, they're not that. You break them out of their patterns. You put them in their prefrontal cortex and you get the real answer. And the more rapid you do that and the more awkward the silence is following that, the more authentic the answer usually is. So if a guy's going to squirm like Nate from, you know, when when we, the first, I wish I had a recording of that first call. I was like, this guy's going to hate me because I was trying to flush out any, any inauthenticity and we're, you know, we're, we're friends. Um, it, it didn't, it didn't cost me the relationship because he, he, he got through it. He was, he was who I was hoping he was, but I was pretty tough on him. Like I was, I was very crass and I'm not that way in real life. I'm not that way, you know, in in business, but there's a lot, I don't, I don't really want to put a percentage to it. Just be damn careful because a lot of, a lot of sponsors, like a lot of GPs, like it's, it's all great when it's a pro forma, but what you have to underwrite is what happens when that pro forma proves to be wrong and he is he going to work 20 hours a day mortgage his damn house and and know that he gets zero salary and zero return on the deal but will he do that to defend your capital and if the answer is no go find one that will they're
0: they're a, they're hard to find but they're worth the work how how do you how do you i mean you know, I'm just trying to picture you asking, you know, each GP this question and watching them They're all different. Like,
1: I, you know, there was one here recently that it it didn't go well, and because just a just a, and it wasn't nearly as aggressive as what I just showed you. But they were claiming to have artificial intelligence, and I'm like, oh, that's great. I mean, like, so so you've got true machine learning algorithms and, and language models. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm like, cool. Pull up your screen. Let's demo. Oh, I'm like, all right, well, send me the NDA. Let's do that. And, you know, go ahead and send the subscription agreement. I'll sign it. But like, I want to see what, what, you know, I want to see what you're building. Well, he immediately got defensive. So I just turned the heat up a little bit. Well, come to find out they didn't they 're not even fucking writing code. They had twenty million dollars of other people's money paying fat salaries, bragging about their last exit. They don't have anything. Chat GPT will destroy those guys because they're claiming to have an ai driven Robo coach and act like it's a damn you know virtual Tony Robbins, but they have an idea, and just by barely leaning on them, they got defensive. They showed me that early and that I would never, and I, and I was that direct. I said, I don't trust you. I would never place a dollar of my worst enemy's money with you. You will screw your investors. And that didn't go over too well either, but like, (laughs) I don't mind having that reputation as an underwriter. Like I want sponsors to respect me, but if it's a sponsor that's doing that to people, I want him to, I want him to be aware of me and I want him to tell his friends about it because that way they won't end up on my calendar. Right. It's totally totally
0: <laughs> is this process methodical for you do you have like a checklist is it like i ask these 10 questions
1: it's an intuitive thing um you know no different than if if you it's like building friendships honestly like it's it is it's really is this a person that i want to share my most lim- my most limited scarce resource with you know when you meet a guy it's easy to get excited when you, especially conventions are good for this right everybody's juiced and there to connect. And it's like, one of the things I ask myself is, you know, obviously time is our most precious resource. Is this human someone that I want to share my most precious resource with? And can I add value to his life? Like, can can I, you know, make it worth his time? And it's not that much different with sponsors. Like, is this someone that, you know, you're probably your second most precious resource just because it can help you with all areas of life is money. And is this someone that I, I trust no matter what to, to invest this this precious resource with, so it's it's intuitive, no different than like learning who you can trust in your personal life, and and in, in the course of everyday business, it's kind of the same thing, not rocket science.
0: Yeah, and then when you get into deals, I mean, I'm I'm here you listing off like oh there was this risk of the EPA being able to pull back their contract, or you know like do you have a you know pool of people that you talk to, or are you just You've just been in this game long enough to where you're like, how do things go sideways?
1: Yeah, I talk to people. So ultimately where I've ended up is uh, I've ended up investing with, uh, 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 with to allow friends into investments that they didn't have access to. I sent a text message, and I don't know. I was out in Washington, near Leavenworth, Washington, out in the national forest, living in a camper, and just thought, oh, why not start an investment club?" So I, uh, there was a, a safe round, uh, an investment that was coming up as a safe round. So I sent a text message to twelve friends, and I said, "Hey, I've got this opportunity that that really the public doesn't have access to. You guys all think I'm a drug dealer, like this is this is the kind of stuff that I invest in. Are you interested?" And 10 of them jumped. And I like, so within five days, I went from not knowing what an investment club was to owning one. So I pulled together the operating agreement, the procedures, um, you know, got, got, uh, I used TribeVest as the platform, the kind of the communication hub and banking. And all that came together in five days in the middle of the National Forest in remote Washington. <clears throat> I learned a ton in five days. But what I've ultimately learned, I thought it was going to be a single purpose thing. I'm like, all right, I'll let them ride my coattails through this one. And then we'll just burn this once once we're liquid. And what ended up happening is I realized in, in that that my closest circle of friends, they're developers. They work for, you know, large, large companies. Um. They, we've built ski front, beach front, luxury, single family, multifamily, uh, highways, cabins in the Smoky Mountains, water parks. So, but mostly small business and real estate income. But they have never even heard of these types of investments. So, one text message kind of changed my whole perspective on things and how I underwrite. I'm not their fiduciary. I'm a GP. They're a GP. But I feel like they're fiduciary because I got them into this and, you know, beside of my name, it says president. So it's really changed how important it's made underwriting even more important for me, because imagine if if you make a bad investment decision and drag your 11 best friends into it with you. That sucks, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm... So that's where a lot of this comes from is like trying to help other people in- into this um, has really changed how I, how I look at deals. And that's why I'm willing to be even more crass earlier in the conversation. Because if if you you got to talk to, uh, you know, I, to me, it's probably 100 to 1. I, I can look at 100 decks and I might find one that I'd be like, yeah, I'd invest in that. I'd do that deal. Um, so... Like as I've since fall of twenty one, I've been underwriting, you know, through a different lens. Like I look at it with even more scrutiny now because I'm not just protecting myself. I'm protecting my friends, but my reputation with those people. Um, so I've gotten probably a little more a little more critical of things. Um I met somebody just in, so I'm in Genius Network and I met a gentleman in there that's, he's, he's an advisor to ultra high net worth business owners. And I've never seen anyone do this before, but what he does, he has a process that takes upwards of six months cost the sponsor has to pay all the cost between 200 and 250 thousand dollars to be fully underwritten and investigated so what they're doing is they're getting cpa firms to go in and dig into every business they own they they ask them for a personal financial statement including ever all businesses and everything um so they're looking into all of their businesses they're looking at they're doing background checks credit checks like on on all of the principles in those entities then they're digging into their personal finances They're digging into their personal lives like they are uncovering every stone. But when they put somebody on a Zoom call, they have they have been vetted for over a six month period and they're a quarter million dollars invested just to get on a Zoom call. But to a very, very small firm with two partners has seven hundred and thirty one million dollars AUM. wonder why. Because they can get their guys into 3x, 4x deals in a two to three year period because they're, they're, they're really scrutinizing and the, the good sponsors, the cream rises to the top. Like they have access to the no bullshit guys that won't quit. They'll make it work and they've got, you know, multiple ways to do that. And that's probably the most formal underwriting that I've ever seen on, on a sponsor. Um, but I think that's absolutely brilliant like he's 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 a you know a trusted advisor. Like how many of you guys listening, how many of your financial advisors would even like spend $5 to take somebody for a cup of coffee to see it? Like, you know, like they're very commission driven and unless it's a retirement account, they're not even your, or they're an RIA. They're not even a fiduciary. And this guy's willing to put this huge hurdle in front of, in front of his firm that says, yeah, we, we can greatly benefit from, you know, from raising capital for you. But before we raise capital for you, who the hell are you? And here's our process. It's going to cost you a quarter million bucks in six months. If a sponsor is willing to go through that, they're going to be with you for the long haul, right? A lot of people, the ones that make me most nervous are the ones that are trying to raise capital within 90 days of the start date of the project. It's their first deal they've ever done. And they have no contingency plans. And they're, you know, and the more risks that are disclosed in a PPM or if a private placement memorandum. The scarier that document is, the better, I, the more I trust the, the principals because um, they're willing to put that out there.
0: Totally. To, to, to kind of like maybe wrap this up, what, how is your perspective on investing changed since you first started investing in funds to now? Like what lessons have you learned? What maybe have you adjusted in your process?
1: Um, Lessons learned is 99% of deals aren't deals for me. Um, I, like if if you're gonna take an eight pref and a one point five multiple and an eighty twenty split over ten years, good for you. It's probably safer than stock investing. But to me, that's just like I mean it, it, that's retail shopping. So I'm looking for you know I'm looking for what what most people people would perceive as really risky investments. But I'm looking for more upside. I mean, hell, I, like I mean you and I you and I both have money. Like we know funds where you can get you can get 12 percent with literally next day liquidity on a 12 pref like why buy those other deals when you can do that? And, and you, you can trust those guys. Like we know them, right? Like they're, they're really good people. So I think I see a lot of people just buying these, these deals cause they, they don't know what else is out there. And there's, there's some really amazing funds out there. You just have to, and that's, that's the thing. Like with Don, everyone knows he won't quit, right? Like it's, 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 you know, it's not too big to fail, but the culture within that organization, they won't quit. Like they'll figure, they'll figure it out. They'll, they'll pivot. They'll innovate. If the market shifts, like they're not going to quit. They're just, just not in them. And And there's a
0: real business behind that opportunity. I just, I just made an investment in their fund today, actually.
1: Yeah. So like that is like, that one's awesome. That's one that like, it's hard to compare a lot. I mean, it's hard to compare much to it. So for me, I've gotten more picky. I've learned about, you know, I've learned to to better underwrite the people to find which people are going to end up putting the best deals in front of you. And like with that sponsor we were talking about, I don't know if we're naming names, but like they offer a variety. So whether you're looking for, you know, uh, income with liquidity or whether you're looking for long term growth with tax favorability, they pretty much have it there. Um, So, when they give you options, like when a a sponsor gets to the point where they're like, okay, you can have the red pill or the blue pill. We don't care which. Oh, hell, we don't care if you take either. Like, that's when you're in the right room. Like, you're talking to the right people when you start to hear things like that. Like, we have options for you. We don't care if you invest or not. Then you're on the right track. And that's what I've learned. So, I've kind of raised, and, you know, the it was, I guess it wasn't an accident. I guess I was just right from the beginning. I have nothing but respect for Paul Moore. I think he's outperformed my and probably every investor's expectations. I I somehow got that right in the beginning. I don't, I'm very thankful. I don't have any horror stories about this. I got, I, I, my hackle went up and I got out before I ever got in on on a lot of those like the ones that were marginal and I've seen them go sideways too and I'm like whew missed dodged a bullet on that one but that's the biggest thing is like just figuring out and you're one of like you're, you're inspiring, like your, your thesis, like literally sitting down and taking the emotion out of investing by having a written thesis, I think is an amazing thing to do. And I've, you shared yours with me before I've seen it. And I think that everyone should do that. I don't really know anyone other than you and I that do it, <laughs> but <laughs> um, when you do it, I'm like, oh, he's as big as a geek as I am. Because um, like, I have a spreadsheet with allocations where I am now where I want to be on a percentage basis, just formulas. And it. it rolls my like, my entire net worth. And it shows me where I'm off balance and it just is a simple spreadsheet but i think having a thesis like having like deliberately investing is really important that helps you not be subject to your own cognitive biases in times like right now when you know who the hell knows what's happening right now it's it's it'll be months before we before we actually reveal the truth but i mean just with what's happened with svb you know go back two weeks ago did you think it would play out this way no one had a freaking chance of guessing what would happen. My bank ended up buying up SVB's assets, what, two days ago. And like, I was freaking out, digging through their balance sheet. I'm like, should I move? Should I move to to other assets? And then hell, my bank ended up buying SVB. Didn't see that coming. Um, The exact opposite. But I ended up holding my position because they were healthy. But like, you you never know what's going to happen. And I think that, These next ten years, and I'm sure every generation has had a chance to say this, but these next ten years sure seem like they're gonna be more interesting than any ten years previous in, in US economics just because of the you know, we are we've been slowly transitioning from you know, an agrarian society to an industrial society now into an information society. You know, Mr. Moore's Law, he just passed away like two days ago. It so disappointing because like he was just about to see Moore's Law, like get to the point of, of proving it was right. But uh yeah, you got to see a lot of interesting things. But I think you're going to see more up. Op- and I'll put this in air quotes for anyone who's not watching video opportunities are going to be your biggest risk in this, in in the, the economy we're emerging into. Because with AI, you're going to have more deception, more possibility for deception and misinformation than you've ever seen in your life. You're going to have tools that are doing underwriting work for you or for other people. And for me, I build my own damn spreadsheets. If somebody sends me a pro forma, I'm like, yeah, that's great. Delete start from the beginning because in my head, if I don't have a cognitive map of the formulas, I don't trust it. So. When somebody when when ChatGPT four fires out a pro forma for a multi family investment and runs three different scenarios, are you going to go through every single cell and prove that ChatGPT's work was accurate? Because we know through psychological testing, it's about nine and a half years old in human terms. So, are you going to invest seven figures of money? on the advice of a nine-year-old? Probably not. So I think the way we underwrite is going to have, it's going to be, it's going to force us to innovate. Um, I think that it's going to be easier to be taken advantage of in in this new economy than it ever has been. Um, It's going to be easier to create big, beautiful decks and amazing pro formas and financial models with literally text prompts. People don't have to learn how to use Excel. Um, I think it's the the really, really good sponsors are probably going to be more back of the napkin than they've ever been. And the shysters are going to have beautiful pitch decks and amazing pro formas and, and a lot of things like that. So I think we're going to have to be even more prudent as technology increases. <clears throat> and that also affects the other asset classes that we're investing in. Um I think it's going to get really interesting, but you better, you better watch your assets more than ever because it's going to be easy to be taken advantage of. And there's going to be a lot of desperate people out there that were, they've been high on debt for, you know, uh, the most of their, most of their investing career. And they're now, that's breaking down and they're losing access to it. So be, be more, be more diligent than ever when, when investing with somebody for the first time because you know, their their legal documents protect them if they can just get the cash. So just make sure that you're and if you're if you're if you're not sure, find a mentor in this. And I, I can't remember the author's name, but there's a book that was re- written in the last couple of years. I wish would have been there when I started. Um, and it's called, you, you know, it, uh hands off investor. I cannot remember the author's name, but if you if you made it this far in this conversation and you haven't read Hands Off Investor, and, and you haven't yet done an LP deal, go buy that book because he took what took me a decade to really learn, and he sells it to you for fifteen bucks. That book's worth hundred thousand bucks to anyone on here. If you're going to play in this space, that book is worth a hundred grand to you. Um, I don't I have no association with it. I just I'm glad somebody finally wrote it because um, I, yeah. I, mean, I spent thousands of dollars going to conventions to sit in rooms for three and four days to learn it. And what he says in that book is really consistent with this conversation. I was surprised. I was like, Ooh, what am I going to learn? What have I been doing wrong? And he's kind of the same thing. I underwrite to the people, then look at the deal, but he, he'll explain to you in very simple terms, what this looks like from an absolute beginner standpoint and what the inner workings of a deal look like on the GP side, even though you're looking at being the LP, you should understand what their role as a GP is and what's important to look for in them. Um, but, I am looking for opportunities now. I think there's all that said. I think the technology is going to bring some interesting opportunities. I think big pharma better look out because we've got psychedelics in, in late late stage clinical trials. And I think there's going to be some really interesting opportunities in triple net. Uh, real estate in that space. I think you're going to see some really interesting opportunities in the, the advancements in neuroscience and wearable devices. Um, I think there's some some really interesting plays that are emerging there, and I think you're going to see some very interesting energy and commodity arbitrage opportunities. And you know, like I would I would suggest anyone listening to this, like. If Pascal hasn't talked about, you know, the way he establishes a a thesis to make his investing less emotional, I think you should talk about that and show them like why and how. But you should do that on your own, even if it's like, all right, I've got X amount and I'm going to allocate that into these two, two different asset classes. And here's why I chose those two, and here's how much I'm gonna put in each one, and here's how long I expect the money to not be in my control. By doing that, when things get emotional, when stuff goes sideways, when opportunity, when short-term, when when you have a small window of opportunity to make a deal, you won't get hung up in fear. You'll know, listen, I I trust myself here because I have a thesis, it was carefully established, and all I have to do now is make sure it's the right person, the right deal, I don't have to deal with my own emotions. We've already cleared that hurdle, so that's what I would say is your your largest step in preparation. Get yourself educated to a point where you understand the vehicle we're talking about. You understand how a, a reg D offering works. You understand the difference between reg A and reg D, and where you fit in that. And does reg A fit into maybe some of those opportunities? Fit into your your you know your thesis. But get all that out of the way first, then start looking for deals or start looking for sponsors and start looking at their deals.
0: Yeah. And one of the benefits of, uh, of even writing an investment thesis is being able to look back and understand what were you thinking Yeah, and then, and then iterate like, oh, I thought this was happening and I was totally wrong. Uh, yep. And I think that's where most of the learning comes from. But, um, it's
1: uh it's humbling like because after God knows how many thousands of hours of research in twenty sixteen you know, and I remember someone else that was doing the same thing like it was v- very validating for me when Ken McElroy started to dump his por- a large chunk of his portfolio around the same time, and I'm like, ah, see, I'm not crazy. And we were both, you know, talk about a Michael Berry moment. Like, hell, we were, we were five years early. But who knew that we were going to print $4 trillion and throw another two on the balance sheet, right? Like, it, who the hell knew? And, and before we even did that, slam rates to zero. Like, had that not been done, I mean, the rates went to zero in a hurry because they already, they knew what the heck was going on. We, we learned that back in the fall of 19. Or, yeah. So anyways, it, it, who, the, who the hell knew? But it's interesting to go back and I made a video in my, uh I had a real estate lead company the first week of COVID lockdown. And I, you know, I was like, God, everything I said in that was wrong. I went back and listened to it a few months ago. And everything wasn't wrong. And I actually did preface it. I said, all of my opinions are all subject to to be wrong and to change based on what quantitative easing looks like and how much of it there is. This could be pushed out four to six years. And damn, I was I was actually right. Like, but I, I went back and listened to that and I still think all that's happening. Like, it's just happening way more slowly this time than it than it has in the past. And it, it's you know, every time it's different and it always looks simple in retrospect but in that like one of the exciting things if you're just getting into this congrats first of all for making it to accredited investor status also congrats on being at the right part of the business cycle to to ride the wave up and most likely the the right part well uh, and, and what doesn't, it's not going to feel right for a couple of years, but being in the right part of the monetary cycle, the long-term debt cycle, because this is our 19th, this is our great grandparents moment, I think um, the world will come out of this looking a lot different than it has in the past.
0: Thank you for coming on the show, Chad. This was awesome. Uh, and, uh, I'm looking forward to having talking, talking to you again at, at one of the next components events.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. If anyone wants to reach out to me, I should have said that, um, you can, I'm on Facebook, Chad Corbett, uh, or you can email me Chad at magnum opus
0: Sweet. And, uh, and I'll include all the links in the bios as well. So, okay. Thank you everyone.